Welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, as always, and joining me is senior TechCrunch reporter, Mary Ann. How are you, Mary Ann? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I had focaccia this morning before like the appropriate time to eat focaccia. So I'm having a great morning. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> no, that's awesome. <laughs> we are also joined by the inimitable Becca Skutak. Becca, you've been busy on TechCrunch.com. How are you? I am good, but now I'm can't stop thinking about focaccia. <laughs> it's so good. When you guys come here for either Disruptor or Life, let me know because Liguria Bakery, for anyone based in SF, is like it's a hundred years old and it's life-changing focaccia. I could talk about it forever. You're making me hungry. Stop. <laughs> That's all we plan for the show today. <laughs> Just talk about food. Um, no, we're not talking about food, but we are talking about some really fun things in tech, which is our happy place, our other happy place. So for the deals of the week this week, we're going to talk about a passwordless authentication startup, a phenomenal new VC firm and a neobank that somehow made its way onto Marianne's radar. And then we'll keep with the fintech theme and catch up with the BNPL market, an acronym I haven't said in forever. The last two themes are around startup advice for laid-off tech workers and EU regulation and its impact on both EU and US companies. But Becca, let's start with a very surprising deal that's coming for Duo, which we use on a daily basis to get into any tech crunch systems. Definitely. So the deal we're talking about is a passwordless authentication startup, Dscope. And the reason this is interesting is this company raised a whopping $53 million seed round. Oh my God. The company is less than a year old. It was founded in April 2022. And I checked with Kyle Wiggers, who wrote this great story on this round and it was all equity which is quite interesting to think of a 53 million dollar equity round in general because every vc last year was like oh 20 million seed rounds are out and it's like but 53 million seed rounds are apparently in and the other interesting thing here is this is a space that seems like it has so much competition i feel like over the last couple of years everyone is trying to tackle identity management and sort of identity verification types of problems. And while I understand the problems are quite large and definitely a broader problem than maybe a lot of other categories, that's a crowded field. So 53 million seed round, crowded field. I have a lot of questions. I mean, 53 million in seed funding, even at the height of things, like when the market was crazy, 53 million seed was like massive. And so especially now when we're we're in a very different environment and you don't even see 53 million series B rounds very often anymore. Like right. everything is kind of shrunk. This is just outsized and, and crazy. I read the story and, and was like, okay, what makes this company so unique? The only thing that I could you know, of course, I'm no expert in this space, but the the thing that stood out to me was it's no code. Yeah. And I guess no code is really like really hot. And I don't know about the other competitors in the space, but is that possibly what helped it bring in so much dough? Yeah. The CEO said something along the lines of, yes, the no code bit, but also like because of the way they've built their workflow, it speeds up time to market and makes it easier to modify and update user journeys, which I think is just like maybe something what we wouldn't know about is that how complex it is to introduce a authentication service on an app. And this is maybe disrupting that whole process. I think the more believable theory that I'm just going to say is they have blackmail on every other competitor out there. Because what? What? 
what do they have that's going to give them so much capital? I'm trying to see which VCs are involved and if there's, I mean, it's Lightspeed Venture Partners and GGV, which are two, you know, rational VC firms. Becca, is that, is that fair? I wouldn't consider them like one of those firms that always like bump up the value and overinvest. No, I would agree. Like, I mean, a lot of firms, the majority were guilty of that in 2021. But if I had to think of like who I would peg as like the particular bad players and raising the price of rounds, neither of those firms would come to mind. Yeah, right. right. We'll get to equity after hours for the firms that do raise the prices. (laughs) But let's talk about my deal of the week. I wrote about a VC firm. I broke my rule where I often don't. And I'm talking this week about Phenomenal Ventures. It's built by Mina Harris, who you may know as the founder and CEO of Phenomenal. And she's co-founding it with Helen Min, who was the former CMO at so many different top tech companies, including but not limited to AngelList and Plaid. And I was excited about this for so many reasons. I think the top detail is that their first fund is closing at $6 million. It has investments from 776, which is Alexis Ohanian and Caitlin Holloway's fund, Tribe Capital, Slow Venture, and founders from some of the companies that they once worked at. Also, around 40% of LPs are founders, and nearly half of the fund's investors identify as women. So really positive there. And I think, you know, so many reasons to cover the company. Obviously, part of it being watching Mina Harris step from media to merchandising to entertainment and now venture, which is kind of a nod to her mm-hmm. early tech roots. What do you guys think? Overall, it was really interesting. And I think I, I most appreciated their candor and honesty around their raise and opting to stop fundraising. Did I read this correctly, Natasha? Like after a certain point? Yeah, this is actually the detail that I got the most outreach on after I hit publish, which is Helen mentioned during the interview that they would stop fundraising after their first close. They actually closed half the fund in the first three weeks of 2022. But then the market, as we have talked about way too much, has turned and it kind of froze up LPs and it froze up just people's interest in betting on a new fund. And so the way that Min describes it. She said that there's, quote, a real trade-off between the time that we spend fundraising and the time that we actually spend with deal flow and meeting founders and helping our portfolio companies. So we decided to call it. And Mina also describes it as kind of this modest start, but they just wanted to start doing the work. And I I just kind of appreciated them saying it out loud because they both are probably the two most qualified people I've seen in a recent moment that have started a VC fund. Yeah, I think they just articulated out loud probably what a lot of a lot of people trying to raise money for new funds are going through. And and again, I think the more honesty and authenticity we can see from investors and founders, like the better for for everyone, right? So yeah, I really appreciated that. And I, and I see their point. It's like, if you're going to spend so much time trying to fundraise, that takes away from the time that you could spend, you know, with the, the companies you have invested in or, or actually looking for deals. So all of that makes sense. Yeah. No, Marion, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's so easy to forget when firms are raising these large funds all the time, that the same people are raising those funds, especially if you're talking about a smaller scale player, those same people who raise the funds are who invest the funds. So it's like if you're spending a ton of time just raising and raising and raising, you're not spending as much time doing due diligence. You're not spending as much time finding outbound interest in different companies, meeting with founders. And so it's good to see that transparency because I'm sure a lot of funds actually make this decision. They yeah. just choose not to talk about it. Never. Right. I think it's low-key a red flag when a VC loves fundraising too much. I mean, some of the founders, I'm like, don't you want to do the other part too? I mean, maybe with co-founders, right. there can be one that likes fundraising. But I just find it weird when VCs are like thriving with this process. I'm like, what about the other part, the big part of the job? Right. No, that's such a good point. Also, another detail really quickly of the story, because it's something that me and Becca are going to work on, hopefully as a follow-up, is like they spoke a little bit about how the phenomenal brand, as big as it is, it helps with marketing, but it also has impacted the kind 
kind of deal flow that they find people reaching out with, which is a lot of times they're getting D2C startups pitching them. And I think part of it, they said, is like because of the brand. But another part is like they think because two women started a VC firm, they're only interested in consumer goods, which annoys me so much. But, you know, also, I think them saying that out loud and saying that they actually invest in software enterprise, fintech, future of commerce just felt important to hear. And I I want other VCs to be that honest with me, too. Absolutely. No, definitely something I've noticed before, too, with chatting with women who raise funds in this industry or people assuming that, oh, you're only going to invest in women or only going to invest in these few, quote unquote, women safe areas like a health tech fund. They're like, so women's reproductive health. And it's like, oh, no, we're backing that. But like we're backing everything else, too. Whereas like if a white guy from Stanford raises a fund, we don't assume he's just going to back white guys from Stanford, even though that's what he'll do. (laughs) (laughs) But let's end on deals of the week. And Marianne, talk about a neobank that I'm just still can't get over you writing about. I didn't know they still exist. Right, right. I know. It feels like I haven't written about a neobank raising money in over a year, but I don't know if that's true. I was drawn to this company for a few reasons. It's a startup called Vexi based in Mexico City, and they've raised $8 million. It's a Series A. And what they do is they offer credit cards to Mexicans. It's The target is mostly like the younger demographic, like 18 to 35. And okay, so here in the US, like getting a credit card is, is pretty commonplace, right? I yeah. mean, many young adults do it. It's usually not that hard. And in Mexico, it's like, I think only 10% of the population has a credit card. Only 20 percent has access to credit generally. Wow. And the credit they do have access to is like insane, insane interest rates. Like, I mean, in the hundreds of percent. So what Vexi does is they offer these credit cards at what still seems like very high interest rates to us here, like 29 to 79%. But there is actually much lower than what what is typically out there for people. They were telling me that most of the people who end up getting their cards used to get credit through like micro loans okay. that had these insane interest rates. So the company's doing pretty well. They said they've grown 4X over the past two years. And I liked it for a few reasons. I talked to the two of the five founders. They were women, incredibly smart, incredibly passionate about what they're doing. I could really feel that authenticity that we were talking about earlier. That You can tell that that they really seem to care about wanting to help this emerging middle class in Mexico have access to credit, be able to to get out of a, a cycle of debt. And, you know, they said, I think about, I don't know, half or 59% of their cardholders have businesses. They use the card to fund and grow their business. So, so they really seem passionate about trying to help people you know, build their credit, build their their businesses, just grow financially. I'm thinking a lot about the startups that like kind of set out to help people in the middle class, but just find themselves tempted, or at least it'd be easier to help the people who are already fluent or already able to access better financial deals and instruments, just like help them get farther. But so it's kind of refreshing, Marianne, to hear that it's working. Yeah. They're finding the right people and they're helping them instead of working around it, but just saying that they're, I don't know, making the impact, the social impact that they are. Yeah. A couple of things I was asking them about was like, what about risk? You know, like the, they said the, I think median income of their cardholders is like 600 to $800 a month. And they said that they have like a proprietary system that they've built to kind of gauge within tiers. And so they're, they're trying to be careful and responsible in their lending. So they don't want to give, say, someone who may not be able to handle it too large of a credit limit. And so once an individual kind of shows they can pay on time, 
spending responsibly, then they may increase their credit limit, that sort of thing. Also, another very interesting thing about this company is they don't have a third party issuer or processor and, and their cards are Amex branded, which they feel like gives them an advantage in the Mexican market because I think Amex there has a certain prestige for whatever reason over like say a Visa or a MasterCard. But the fact that they don't work with a third party issuer or processor means that they make more money off of interchange fees, like a lot, like three times more. So unit economics sound like they're pretty good there based on that. I was just going to add, I totally agree with what you said, Natasha, where there's a lot of companies, especially in this sort of like neobank credit card kind of fields that say they're targeting an underserved market. And then you start looking at it and you're like, is that market really underserved in this way? Like maybe it is sort of like societal or sort of it's a market that's prejudiced against, but is it actually underserved in the field of getting a credit card, which can be such a predatory industry in the US? Totally. And I'm always kind of like, I don't know if I agree with that. But in this case, this, like the way it's framed in the story and the way they talk about Vexi, like this actually does seem to be kind of filling a gap for an underserved community in Mexico, which is always really interesting to see because like you said, so many companies say that, but they're not really doing that. But this, there's evidence here that that's actually happening, which is always nice. I love that they're, well, they're venture-backed. And Marianne, I think that bit on the unit economics kind of answers some of the obvious response that I already had multiple times this episode as to why is it Neobank back? But it sounds like they might be able to avoid some of the large losses that we saw the bigger Neobanks rack up because of that little hack that you mentioned of not yeah. working with third party. Right, right. And also just I think they're focused on slow, sustainable growth, and they're not trying to go wild. So, you know, that usually works in the company's favor. Uh, So yeah, excited to see where the where this company goes. But on the topic of responsible lending, why don't we get into buy now pay later, which was in the news quite a lot last week when a firm announced its layoffs of what 2000 people was it no it was 500 500 yeah it was a lot of people yeah a firm which is one of the bigger buy now pay later players announced this they announced also financial results that were pretty disappointing compared to what analysts were expecting they shut down their crypto unit stock tanked by over 20 percent last week by the end of the week i think a firm was only valued at about 3.6 billion which yeah it's a lot but also down quite significantly from the 12 billion it was valued at when it went public in early 2021. So this kind of put BNPL in the spotlight once again, like after Klarna had its massive valuation drop from was 45 billion to 6.7 billion last year. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued a report last year that these companies really needed more oversight and were like, uh, duh, like you just now came to this conclusion. Like we needed that a long time ago. Um, you know, <laughs> so funny when that happens. You're like, thank you. I know. I think that a firm, I mean, I actually admire a firm and I really do think that Max Lepkin has noble intentions with the company. I interviewed the CTO last year. There's a lot of problems right now with buy now, pay later because of consumer delinquencies, the the economy, higher interest rates, and people are are not really spending the way they used to. A firm does claim that their delinquencies are not on the rise, unlike with a lot of other lenders, but still clearly things are, are rocky there. And I know when we started talking about this in the prep, it made me think, 
Quick plug to Found, if you want to hear the founding stories behind early stage startups, even though Klarna is definitely not an early stage startup, we had Sebastian, CEO and one of the co-founders of Klarna on the show a couple weeks ago. And one of the things me and the co-host Daryl talked about afterward is we thought it was really interesting how he really didn't bring up Buy Now Pay Leader at all. And you can tell from the brand's marketing and kind of just what they've put out over the last year, they're definitely trying to move the marketing and the messaging away from this being like their main source of revenue, which I mean, it's not their main source of revenue to begin with. But there definitely seems to have been like a conscious change that they don't just want to be known as a buy now, pay later company, which of course could mean a lot of things, but just kind of following the BNPL space over the last year and sort of seeing it ride in that market definitely made my ears perk up in the sense of like, well, maybe because the space isn't doing super well overall, they want to make sure customers know they have all these other options and sort of other products and ways to interact with them, which is smart on their part. But because I think, I mean, for me personally, they were the first big BNPL company I knew. It's very noticeable mm-hmm. that like it's changed a bit there. For sure. That's quite telling. I mean, it says a lot because they even recognize like, like, look, this is, this model may not be the most sustainable in the long term. We can't put all our eggs in one basket. So I do agree with you that that's notable. Um, something else I, I kind of realized digging into BNPL is that while consumer-focused BNPL is, is struggling, B2B BNPL seems to be kind of in the spotlight more. I've seen several deals already this year with companies raising money and they're they're not consumer focused but they're focused on lending to other businesses. So to me that's super interesting as well. What's an example of that because I'm thinking like so a company pays you later something like that? There was one that I really liked last year I spoke to called Slope. Okay. If I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly and they do B2B buy now pay later for inventory and the ceo made such an interesting case when he was telling me about it because he was like oh my parents ran a toy store you obviously do a lot more business at a toy store in the months leading up to christmas hanukkah and stuff like that than you would in say like a random month like march yeah so he was saying buy now pay later would work so well for businesses like that because he said his parents would struggle to put the money forward to stock the inventory they knew they would sell for christmas but they weren't seeing those sales yet. So that sort of example really clicked with me about how this could be like really smart for definitely mm-hmm. certain kinds of businesses. Oh, I'm so here for that. That's such a good point. And it's kind of like, Marion, this theme was inspired by your recent TC Plus piece. If this is the end of the BNPL boom. And I feel like, well, one, the example you just gave Becca is making me think that we might see like the disappearance of companies being like, we're the Klarna or the Affirm for X, Y, and Z. But the classic side effect of such a big boom and somewhat of like a settling is like we're seeing these like niche cases pop up that actually make sense. So like it gets people there and then only a few people are going to actually win or do it right. But I'm kind of okay with the boom being done as a result. Yeah. (laughs) And there's one other thing before we end on this topic that players like Apple are entering the space, right? It's it's planning its own sort of version of buy now, pay later. So that's going to really change the whole dynamic too. I mean, when if, if Apple gets into this game, so we'll have to see how the bigger existing players react and adapt to having Apple <laughs> enter the market as well. Oh my God. Well, that's a good segue because Apple's one of the few companies that has not had layoffs yet, at least that we know of. And our, our second theme is 
actually a more positive spin on the 2023 and 2022 tech layoff beat, which is we had a recent piece on TC Plus that surveyed six seed and early stage investors to get advice for laid off tech workers. And listen, I thought it was a great piece. I think that it's important for people who are raising to read it to remember that here are how VCs think you can stand out, whether that be leverage, whether that be unfortunately returning to the warm intro. My only qualm with this piece was the VCs who said that they're interested in investing in like all the sectors that currently exist. I was like, obviously you're interested in investing. <laughs> There's such an incentive to say that you're investing in everything. That doesn't mean anything. They're, you're never going to say that you're not going to invest and you're never going to categorically say no to an entire category either. So that's my beef with the advice that we're seeing for laid off workers. And I want to be surprised with it. And Becca, I see you smile. So hopefully you agree with me. Well, one thing that I always think about in this kind of conversation, because there's definitely been so much discourse on Twitter and different. I mean, there are even programs now to fund companies started by laid off tech workers. But it's like, if you get laid off by a tech startup, do you really want that to be your life going forward? Like, I get maybe the timing aligns. You really do think you have a good idea. Like, there's definitely going to be people in that boat for sure. And some of them will build great companies. But I don't know. I'm thinking of myself personally, if I got like axed from a company and could like draw the line to being like, oh, VCs overvalued us two years ago. And that's why like I was hired and now my job's getting cut. I just don't know if I'd go down that path, really. I don't know what you guys think about that, but I don't know if I yeah, would. I mean, the whole the whole concept of, of a laid off worker planning to launch a startup, that's just a really small segment of the laid off yeah. population, to be honest. Sure. You know, let's be clear, because probably the vast majority of people who are laid off don't have even the means to to launch a startup, even if they have the idea to do so. But I mean, I appreciate VCs sharing their advice. It never hurts to, to hear their perspective, because if someone wants to launch a startup, they may very well likely turn to venture capital. So I think it's helpful. And I love it when VCs talk more freely about these things. Again, as long as there's that, let's be real about it. Don't just give us some broad advice that could be applied anywhere. I agree. I mean, and I'll be honest, I think advice in general, yes, I'm here for it. I love being surprised by it. In this piece, one of the partners from Lightspeed Venture Partners said that they are specifically interested in founders innovating in areas that are acyclical, which includes healthcare. And I kind of feel like being more explicit about what you actually care about and what you've maybe met, like out of your last 10 investments, if you've actually made, you know, six investments and each one is like a different category, that's fine. But if you can give founders something more specific right. to go off of, that goes farther. I do have a story coming out on laid off work or starting companies. And, and Becca, I definitely get into your questions of what's making them take a risk now. Mm -hmm. And part of it is is wealth, part of its savings, part of it's like people have been looking for an excuse to start their own company. But I, I'm like you and I'm amazed at people wanting to take a bet on themselves after losing such a big safety net. I also feel like in this type of economy too, it's like, like you just mentioned, it's going to be people who have wealth accumulated or people who have savings who can kind of jump into this. Yeah. Because I mean, unless you're like John Foley or Adam Newman, you can't just like raise tons of venture capital without oh my God. the startup kind of getting at least a little bit off the ground. How is John Foley doing? Have you touched base with him anytime recently on that rug? No, rug he, <laughs> not that he allowed me to touch base when I wrote that original story. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's going to create companies, it's going to create new startups, but it's going to be kind of from a specific slice of founders, which I'm not saying that those types of people shouldn't start companies. Of course not. But it's not going to be like a boom across the board. Yeah. By any means, because if you get laid off, you are living paycheck to paycheck. 
you're not starting a company. Right. Or right. maybe you are, but like probably not. Right. My favorite line is like venture might be back, but for the same people that it always has been. Right. So let's definitely like keep an eye on diversity, but let's also switch on to our last theme somehow. We're going over to Europe. There's some tension in the M&A world, which I feel like you manifested, Becca. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There was news this week that Europe is going to assess the European Commission specifically, not just the continent, is going to assess Adobe's proposed $20 billion acquisition of Figma. And this is particularly interesting because it's yet another example of something coming about in the US, a big merger, a big purchase like this, and the US being like, wow, guys, this sounds awesome. And the EU being like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, we need to look at this. And to be clear in this news, they're not launching a full investigation necessarily. They're just like, they want to take a closer look, which of course means there could be an investigation, but important clarification, it's not under investigation currently. But it, it is always interesting. The US just seems to always be playing catch up to the EU on regulations. And that really does impact startups who start here but want to launch in Europe or maybe see a big opportunity there. So it's just another fun instance of the U.S. just being behind. It feels like one of those, if I had to describe this, the situation in like a, a script way, it's like Europe being like, I know to the US that you know, that I know that you know that this is a little <laughs> bit weird, you know? Like, I feel like that's what it feels like. It's like, I'm not going to do something yet about it, but just know that I, I know what you're up to. Know that I'm better at this type of yeah. <laughs> delegation and it's not passing our smell test. So like just letting you know. Yeah. Ultimately, it's a flex that they're like, we're not even going to formally set it off. We're just going to tell you that we were looking at you. So initial review to come, it sounds like, but it also means that Adobe is not about to conclude this transaction. Right. We're not going to see this, you know, an acquisition that was, I think, the biggest acquisition of 2022 going to go through super, you know, without pomp and circumstance, which maybe isn't surprising. Yeah. I mean, without EC clearance, they they can't close, which is, is kind of crazy. I can't even imagine, like, to be honest with you, it did not occur to me that this could happen. I, I didn't think about antitrust or competitive issues coming up here. So I was a little bit surprised. And if for some reason this deal falls apart due to that, I mean, like, wow, that's going to be huge, 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 huge. And we should definitely get back Dylan on the show or on found. Had Dylan been on found? I feel like he has. Yes. Okay. Yeah, fairly recently, too. I think they honestly interviewed him like a week before the deal was announced, oh which God. is like horrendous timing. It's like ideal because he probably would have canceled if it happened after. So I'm glad you should definitely listen to that episode and see if there's any any hints of bubbling up tensions. <laughs> this would be really interesting to me, too, because maybe I just this just shows my lack of like full knowledge on what Figma and Adobe do. But I use Adobe products quite often. And from what I know about Figma... It felt very much like a complimentary purchase as opposed to buying out a competitor. Like, I guess they're competitors, but it's not as obvious as some of the other ones we've seen that have been stopped through antitrust. I think they've marketed. I think that's I think talking off the cuff, no explanation of anything. I think they've marketed themselves as competitive, like we're going to squash it in the early days. So now I'm wondering if that's coming back to bite them. But that's just me talking out loud. I, I'm probably more on your wavelength, Becca, that I see all like working together in harmony versus like coming for each other. Yeah. I mean, I knew that they were competitors and I, you know, obviously Adobe was a much larger company, but I think that's why I didn't think of it that way is because yeah. even though they were competitors, I figured Adobe was just so much larger and that even though Figma was growing quite a lot, I just, 
I didn't think it was so big that it could lead to these sort of concerns. And I will say, like, I think the takeaway is like the EU pays attention to things more than we do, which actually fits well into the last news item for today, which is WeFunder, which helps companies raise money through equity crowdfunding rounds and other sorts of financings, has officially expanded to the EU. It comes after two years of them trying to get approval. And from what Nick Tomorello told me, and Becca, I know you've spoken to him before. He basically was saying how like the EU, you know, they they have high expectations for their companies. And there's like this quality assurance that has also overcomplicated it a little bit, where before all 30 countries within the EU had separate securities and regulations around equity crowdfunding. And everyone kind of wanted to like defend themselves. I mean, this is my words, not his. But recent legislation passed that took away some of that thorniness. And now if you want to expand to as an equity crowdfunding platform to the EU, you can do so in like one fell swoop. So you don't have to negotiate with each country. You can kind of expand and it'll work with each country is the simplest way I can say it. It excited me because it means we'll maybe see more quality in the crowdfunding space. And mm-hmm. yeah, Becca, I know your piece toward the end of last year told me that it's also still a thing. So it's a good expansion. It's not just like they don't know what to do with themselves. They're expanding. It sounds like that whole financing instrument is is popular. For sure. And it's definitely every time I talk to insiders in that space, whether it is Nick Tomarello or people like the Aurora Project and the like, they tell me every single time that the quality of deal flow just continues and continues to go up. They're saying you see YC-backed companies on there. You're seeing Techstars companies on there. You're seeing very legit companies that VCs are funding and are interested in funding that are just looking to either top off around or sort of do this as like an in-between thing. So yeah, definitely, especially with opening the floodgates to companies in the EU, there's a lot of good quality stuff on there. And it seems like that's continuing to like trend in the right direction, which would be good for WeFunder. It would be great. Super interesting. Marianne, I want to end with a question to you, which is, Something that they brought up in the article was like, they think one day they hope that it'll be a something that customers demand of the startups that they pay, that they have the opportunity to invest in those rounds if they're able to. And I'm wondering what you think about that, because I thought it was a, you know, obviously a hopeful and optimistic statement, but also an interesting idea around if we're going to see companies start to look at it ever as like the status quo to start involving their customers on their cap table. I don't know. I feel like only a very small group of startups would want to go that that direction. I think most startups, especially once they've reached a certain level in terms of growth or funding, probably just don't want to deal with it, to be honest with yeah. you. That's that's just my guess. Yeah. I also would say coming from the lens of covering the space as a reporter, but also using some of the startups as a consumer, when all those 10 minute grocery delivery companies were like burning cash left and right. And like I every time I'd go to order and I'd be like, wow, my whole order is 50% off and there's no delivery fee. I'd be like, this business model is crap, but I don't care as a consumer. I definitely wouldn't want to invest in those companies. But as a consumer, I was like, this is lit. But then those companies all died. So you're saying that it's, yeah, it's less like, even if even if they let you, you're not interested. I love that right. take. It's a great take. Some I'm sure. But for some, I'm like, I know this company isn't going to succeed, but the product's good and I am going to use it until it goes down. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because what a consumer might find attractive about a company doesn't mean that that company has what it takes to be successful in the long term. Amen to that. 
Thank you, Marianne and Becca, for an amazing episode. As always, we are off next Monday for the long weekend, but we will be back on Wednesday. And Becca's taking the reins for the new Equity Wednesday show that week, which will be amazing. So catch us there. You can always follow Equity at EquityPod on Twitter and use code Equity for 40% off founder and investor passes at early stage, which is going to be super fun and in Boston. And then also 50% off annual passes of TC+. Just use code Equity everywhere, always, all the time. All right, that's a wrap. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Natasha Mascarenas, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, and TechCrunch senior reporter Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. 